Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. three. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. And, of course, read everything that we are writing as well. We have some great stuff coming out. Uh, psyched, as always, to be joined by good friend and colleague, Caitlin Cooper, to uh, continue our player review pods, the One Series. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I had some insomnia last night after trying to stay up and watch the West Coast Suns-Nuggets game. And I should have just run out of gas like the Nuggets seemed to in the third quarter and gone to bed. But then once I was awake, I was just awake. So... I think that I might have over-researched this pod, if that's possible. I don't think that's a bad thing. We like over-research. Um, over-research is a good thing. And especially considering how bad the Bucks nets game was, uh, I got in a lot of a lot more words in, in writing than I was expecting to yesterday because I only watched like the first quarter and a half of Bucks nets and it was pretty much over from there. So, um, yeah, great great for writers, bad, bad for people watching. But, uh, you know, you make if that the, would have been the second game. I would have gone to sleep at a decent hour. But, you know, yeah. Tough, well, hey, tough that's what me. Synergy's for. Time to watch it today. But, uh, you know, you get lucky every once in a while. Um, we have. Uh, so. All right. Before I always dive into this too early. Before we start, for anybody who has not listened to us on the one series, would you care to explain who it is? I mean, what it is, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So this is just basically our way to kind of put a twist on into season content with player reviews. So each one of these, we're going to do three players. This one's my job to take two. Mark has one and we don't know what the other person has picked, but we curate one play for each player, one number and one over under that we think kind of says something about either summarizing that player's season or something that player needs to work on moving forward, or maybe even something that it says about the team more generally. So we work our way through those in hopefully a somewhat timely fashion. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we try our best to keep it timely. It normally ends up being about an hour, but it'll be good. And then we end with a, a would you rather question at the end. We had a pretty great one in the first one. I'm uh, I'm expecting some fireworks with the one I've got lined up for this, uh, this, this second pod. Um, so, Caitlin, who do you want to start off with today? Yeah, so I'm going first. So I think I'm going to hit with Karis first, um, just generally. I I linked in this post that people will be able to follow along with the clip that I'm going to pick, but also the article that I wrote about Karis about, I think it was around a month ago, just talking about the different reads that he was able to make this year. That was something that really kept me engaged towards the back end of the season, just because I think we knew how creative he could be with the ball in his hands and just how herky-jerky his game is and his ability to decelerate. But I wasn't fully aware of how good he was at reading coming off of screens and not like in a Doug McDermott sense of, you know, I'm going to fly off of picks and, and shoot a three. But in that article, I show like what, how he responded in the second half of the one game against the heat when bam was blitzing him and how he was able to get rid of his second defender and cut back through the picks and and people can look back at that and i preface all this with saying that there's a lot to like about what Karis did especially in the month of may 
Um, mm-hmm. After Sabonis came back from the back injury, he was averaging over 20 points a game, over seven assists per game, shooting over 40% from three, like definitely up this game. His isolation numbers improved vastly over where he started with the Pacers, which was somewhat of a concern for me because that was fairly inefficient, though on the year he's still at like, I believe, 0.7 or 0.8, which ideally in ISO, if you're doing really good, you'd be at about a point per possession. So still not great, but he finished stronger than where he started. So I'm saying all this because the play that I have picked is not super positive. Um, I think we need to talk about his defense, Mark. I think we need to talk about it. We've reached that do point. We so have to? <laughs> yes, we, we yeah, do. We, have to. we do uh, because – I mean, I know that I personally have written like five articles this year at times skewering the de- the actual system of the defense, but in Bjorkren's defense, no pun intended, um, <laughs> there's also stuff that I may have to touch on at some point in a broader article of just things that individual players need to improve on. So here I take us to the game against my actual play. Oh, no, oh no. Can you hear that sound? I cannot hear, hear that in the background. Okay, so it's just coming in my headphones. Good. Okay, so I'm taking us to the game against Charlotte, um, the third one that was at home, where the Pacers seemed to like after the game they talked about. Uh, our Karis mentioned guys not being super into the game from the bench or whatever his comments were. I can't remember exactly right now, but we're in transition D, and as you probably recall, the Pacers had some problems with transition D down the back half of the season. So what happens just before this is that Karras makes a pass to Edmund Sumner slicing down the lane and transition themselves. And Edmund Sumner actually scores a layup. But transition D, as we know, starts on offense and nobody lifts to the top of the key. So at this point, Miles Turner is already back. He's in good position. And Devontae Graham's pushing the ball up the floor. And he calls ball, Miles does, correctly stops the ball and Karras the whole time is just marking his check rather than in this situation, your, your job is to defend the ball and the team, not your individual matchup. So he literally has his back turned to the ball. So when we get to that other end of the court, he's watching Terry Rozier as Biombo is just standing in the paint and miles has stopped the ball. They should be an I formation ideally here. And it ends up being a wide open dunk where nobody is even in view because your job is to protect the basket and then come out to defend Terry Rozier and Karras just stays glued to Terry Rozier the entire time. That is not a Bjorkren issue. That is a Karras Levert issue. So after the play happens and the dunk occurs, what I find really interesting after this is that Karras is like kind of bending over, like he's gassed. And this is why it's kind of, tricky to evaluate his defense because I know he talked about conditioning issues but in my mind like even if he was tired at this point in time you would still be running down the lane knowing that that's your responsibility not just marking your guy as you're running down the court and and attaching yourself to Terry Rozier so in response this is the hilarious point our part Miles has double fisted like he's turning into anger from inside out and like absolutely gives it to Karis. Like if you watch in the clip, some choice words are yelled in his direction and then they end up having a conversation. So I think that that's interesting for a number of reasons, not only because like I said, that's a Karis issue and he tends to have um, not only just in transition, but not knowing when he's supposed to tag, he gets caught on the high side on a switch and then never gets back into the picture. If there's a candidate for somebody who's not going to know whether they're in man or zone, you can usually pinpoint him 
quite a few times in clips that I found when they have those types of like mid morph issues. Um, and then I don't know if I said this already, if you if I did, then you can edit it out. But it, his, some of his tagging isn't quite right either where I mean, one possession in Atlanta that I would point to down the stretch in that fourth quarter, TJ McConnell was guarding Bogdan Bogdanovich on the wing and it's an empty corner and Trey Young's manipulating the pick and roll in expert fashion as he's known to do. And, and ideally like prior to this trade, you would have been able to use Victor to tag as the low man, even if that was from the strong side. And with Karras, that's like, just doesn't happen. A lot of times, even when his responsibility as a weak side tagger is his, he doesn't do it. And in this case, like TJ is then having to make a decision of if he's going to come off of Bogdan Bogdanovich or tag Clint Capella. And there's not a lot he's going to do tagging Clint Capella anyways. So some of this moving forward, like all the great things he does on offense, they're just going to need to tighten the screws somewhat on his defense. And then I would ask you, I mean, some of these types of issues are the same things that I saw from TJ Warren a year ago in preseason when they were in India. I was like, oh, no. Some of these mistakes are fairly egregious. And then within like two weeks of the season, a lot of it was ironed out. Like I did a before and after comparing and not that Luke Kennard is some like obviously elite two-way player, but he did tend to rack up points against the Pacers. They played two games against the Pistons. TJ Warren guarded him in both. And by the second time, it was like all of his mistakes were corrected and he started playing a lot better defense. So how confident are you that, the Pacers, if this staff stays in place, are going to be able to refine some of Karras's defensive skills and hammer some of this stuff out. Because uh, in yeah. the past, I was very confident with most wings. I mean, it didn't completely happen with Jeremy Lamb, but I always felt confident that if the Pacers traded for somebody that, like, I don't need to worry about your defense because even if you don't get transformed into an elite defender, you'll still give effort and be solid in the team scheme. Yeah, I think – so a couple of things off that. Number one, just in answering that question, um, I am not that confident in it um, just because the, the staff that was there in place for almost a decade, at least the bones of it was, um, and you could go even longer with how long um, Dan Burke was here, uh, that staff just isn't here anymore. So that I, I, I hate throwing out like buzzwords like culture, but – I mean, that was just a thing. If you were a wing and you came to Indiana, you were going to become at least an average defender positionally. Um, given, I mean, Karis, it, I I want to be careful in saying this. Like, again, like you mentioned, it's uh, it's tough because he clearly did have conditioning issues, but also the, it's fair to say the defense was pretty bad. Um, it, there were moments, but for the most part, like I think he's probably the worst off-ball defender on the team. Um I mean, Jeremy Lamb will at least close out his closeout pass are just terrible, but um, that's a whole other story that we'll get into eventually at some point. But uh, I, I'm not really that confident that it's going to be much better with this staff, um, especially too, because this staff, I mean, based on, on reporting and general thought, you know, this staff is not going to be here next year, even if Nate Bjorken is back. There's going to be a – I don't remember who the – I think – I want to say it was uh, the Sam Mamek-Shams reporting um, earlier this year. Um, I, I believe it was them who pulled out that even if, if Nate Bjorken's retained, there are going to be changes in the coaching staff. But, uh, yeah, I would – so my, my ultimate point would be no. I, I, don't, I don't really have a lot of confidence that the, it would be on the staff uh, changing it right now. 
Yeah, and, and it, it's tough because there are some things on defense that I think that he does well. Like, if you look at the one game against the Nets when James Harden had the 40-point triple-double, nobody on the roster was st- stopping James Harden in that game, but a couple times he did get switched on to James, and just his length, how long his arms are, bothered him a little bit, and he does get into passing lanes and anticipate those. He can get some steals, and then that lets you get out easily in transition, but like you say, his off-ball defense and then just overall his recognition, like another possession, and this is why like I don't really care which center is out there because Miles got put in a bad position in this one that it wasn't his fault, and then another one against the Wizards. Karis, brace yourself. I'm going to say something that doesn't happen often. Oh, no. Karis went under a screen against the Wizards. (laughs) Karis went under the screen against the Wizards, and it was against Neto. It wasn't Russell Westbrook, and I don't think it was even intentional. He just got snagged and then kind of died on the vine. And Miles is, like, looking at him like, what are you doing? And they just watch Neto shoot a wide-open three. I'm like, what is happening here? Like, there's just no communication. So I held back on pointing any of this out because he did have a really rough season. I mean, he missed months, and I thought, you know, you're coming in into a completely different defensive scheme. But in a situation like the clip people will see here, if they go under the article and click it, like this is just like basic transition defense one on or 101. Like this is just like this isn't even like a, a scheme transition defense of this is how we're going to get back. And it also does show some bad habits team wise, with the exception of Miles and that guys are kind of lightly trotting back. I mean, Sabonis is trying to get the defensive rebound in case Edmund misses, but Justin's in the corner. He doesn't lift up, and then they're not sprinting at a full sprint. But still, in transition defense, your job is to protect the basket first, and if you end up giving a mid-range shot or a shot up, that's what you do, especially when you only have two guys back. But um, So that's that's the somewhat negative side. Oh, and one other thing. Just from that end-of-game presser, this lightly relates to it, and I just want to – preface this by saying I'm not in any way saying that Miles and Karis had some sort of issue or anything else like this is just Miles saying you know what are you doing but one quote that kind of stuck out for me from that end of game presser that there was not a follow-up question on I don't believe and that has only lightly been talked about is from Kevin Pritchard was individually in that locker room they got along very very well When we got on the court, to be brutally honest, it wasn't that way. And there was a little bit of disconnect in the team. Like, and again, this isn't to pin all of this on Karis and Miles in any way, shape or form, but I can show you a large compendium of possessions like this, where guys are getting on each other at both ends of the floor defensively, where you can see guys clapping at each other. And some of that might just come from, like I said, you don't, you're running so many different types of defensive schemes and cycling through so many different types of coverages that they don't always seem like they're on the same page. And I think a lot of that is to blame for it, but you could see moments where it was boiling over. And I, it was just kind of interesting to me that nobody really pressed on, you know, what is you referring to? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think some of that was shown on offense too. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I mean, there were times where you could see like the Bally sports cameras showing guys on the bench when um, one person in particular would have the ball and they would be yelling ball movement. And then they would come in and do the exact same thing after they entered the game where you could just kind of see like, "Mm, that was a little bit questionable. So what did you think when Kevin Pritchard said that? Um, well, it. I, I thought a lot of things on that one, to be honest. I think bringing that up is a good point. I hadn't like directly connected those two, but I do remember that happening. Um, 
And it it did feel like that this year, just in general. Instead of a lot of the, uh, um, how should I put it? Instead of a lot of the like, you could there's you can tell there's a difference between guys just communicating something and guys getting on each other because of a blown assignment. And and we definitely saw a lot more of the latter this year compared to last year. Um, in regards to KP's comment, though, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, well, I mean. The, the biggest thing, because I, I think a lot of that was him referring to, uh, at least in my opinion, it felt like it was more him trying to kind of um, pipe down thoughts on, on what happened in the Sacramento game with Goga and, and Greg Foster. Um, and I was like, yeah, but like that kind of stuff isn't coming through that way if they are really that tight in the locker room. Um, so it was more of like it felt like hedging to me, but also just in general, like, I mean, there there is something you can take away from if guys are that disconnected playing together on the court, um, then yeah. I mean, like you can just see, even if they aren't, uh, like even if you didn't have the, the cameras like pointed at, and seeing the guys getting on each other, like you could tell on court that uh, that they really weren't playing together connected in, in a way. And, and part of that is like you mentioned, part of that's the system, but also like, like we just mentioned with Karis, like uh, it's, he had his moments like he could be like you mentioned, he could do some really good stuff on ball and, and use his length. But um, the, the communication overall was something that I just found to be the biggest problem this year. Like um, as I really learned X's and O's more and, and, and really trying to learn and understand the scheme, it was so much more about, OK, this is not quote unquotes, uh, quote unquote players fault. It's more like nobody communicates anything on the back line like. Outside of Miles, there just really isn't anybody who consistently communicates stuff off ball. That's not to throw guys under the bus, but that shows like, okay, there is a disconnect with these guys on the court. And that's pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help like when they're in the Wizards game. And I mean, sometimes it can be hard to tell what type of defense they're in, especially like if you don't watch a lot of Pacer games to know that they're a team that runs triangle and two. And I remember the game that they played in Washington when they ran all of the junk defenses in the article that I wrote that the reaction after that is like, Oh, they're not even contesting mid range shots. There's no effort here. And, and then talking about like what individuals were scoring on their matchup. And that frustrates me a little bit because I'm like, they were in zone for huge portions of that game and various types of zones. So like no offense, but I don't really care what some into what one individual scored because you're not, defending it man to man and two like you could see moments where like we said like there's one possession from that game where they are in triangle and two and Karis just leaves playing bottom triangle and just trails this guy to the other side like he's in man to man so now you're just giving up a wide open mid-range shot um they're calling that out so I don't really know like I see your point like Miles does a great job communicating but you got to know what type of coverage you're in and I think that becomes harder when you know you're in transition and they were getting toasted there and then the next time down okay well we didn't score so now we're in triangle and two well now we did score so now we're in man-to-man well now Russell went out of the game so we're just going to go box and one against Bradley Beal and having to be aware of all those different things while you're cycling through stuff and not to mention I mean some of what you're mentioning too with communication problems some of that might have just been a product of playing with this many different lineups like every night you might be a bench player then you might be a starter and you're not used to playing with some of the other the three or four other guys that are playing. I mean, O'Shea was a late ad. Karis didn't debut till mid-March. And 
I just thought that the that that quote was a little bit interesting, given that they were saying that Nate Bjorkren's great with X's and O's, but had a human management problem. But then with regards to the players, they got along great in the locker room. But then he says, to be brutally honest, there was a little bit of disconnect on the court, which I thought was, I mean, obviously we're not in the locker room to know what any of these relationships are like you and I aren't. So I'm not going to speculate on that, but as we both said, I think you can see some of the disconnect on both ends of the court, but that was just kind of a weird juxtaposition, but to move on from this not so great clip and everything that we've been talking about on a more positive note, I will go to the one number, which is 73.1. Do you know what that is? 73.1. I'm trying to rack my brain. I know it's free throw percentage is higher than that. Um, it 73.1 oh okay I, I i don't i don't have any ideas to be completely honest. okay so it, it's it's pretty nerdy and niche so per synergy this was very interesting to me 73.1 percent of the pick and rolls that karis lavert ran were high middle rather than on the left or the right side of the floor mm-hmm. and this I think says a lot about a number of things because the Pacers as a team ran a lot more of their action through the sides than, than they did last season. Um, Under Nate McMillan, as we all know, they like to run a lot of standstill high pick and roll. A lot of stuff was run through the roll man and that changed somewhat this year. And in some regards to the better, like the play I wrote about with TJ McConnell, when they're running the, the, the big sets of down screen on the, the outside. And then they flip with the guards running a, a kind of a flip DHO where he attacks baseline. I mean, that was like free points. He's so good scoring in on the baseline. Then if the big committed, you'd get miles or whoever it is right underneath the basket. But that wasn't always the case with Malcolm Brogdon and we'll get to Malcolm Brogdon under yours, but um Malcolm's percentage of these pick and rolls, he was at 59% in the middle of the court, which he was right where Karras is last year at 74%. So that's a big dip. And I think that there's a lot that goes into that. But the thing with Karras is when Sabonis came back from the back injury, they really started to gel from a chemistry standpoint in the pick and roll and just with Sabonis in the dunker spot at times. And I thought it opened up a lot for Karis because they just simplified some stuff. Like they would run horns with O'Shea and Sabonis at the elbows. And there was, you're running very streamlined, basic things, but because Karis can do so much with the ball in his hands, he would make different reads out of like the most basic thing or like three times in the one game against the Bulls, they ran just Spain pick and roll. And he made a different read out of it all three times. But because you're in the middle of the floor, this is the big one. It makes it easier for you to rescreen the unders when you're over there versus that play I just described. Because when they run the play over there on the sides, you're, the big is already turning to set the down screen to free the one guy and then turning to set the ball screen with the guard going back. That's going to be very hard to then turn yet again to get a rescreen in an event that the, that the guard ducks under. And again, we'll get into this with Brogdon, but McConnell's quick enough to get a step on that guy, even when the people go under those side pick and rolls. Brogdon really isn't, but um, in the game with Philly back to Karras, that's what Dan Burke and the Sixers were doing. They were using Ben Simmons to go under against everything on Karras, and it took them a little while, but by halftime, they had Sabonis doing what he's so good at, which is changing angles on the picks, and then Karras was able to get to his spots easier, and he really turned it on there in the back half of that game. So I think letting Karras run more middle pick and roll with the ball in his hands made a difference. I mean, his numbers all went up pretty well in May. And then um, for the year with the Pacers, he had 173 assists, 52 
Cortis Sabonis, which is about 30%. He generally hits the roller pretty well. And this is the other piece of this that not only all the time, like not only did it help Karras, I think, to be running more stuff in the middle of the floor, especially to counter some of the unders, but it let Miles and Sabonis, especially in May, get more on the roll rather than having to wrestle with guys in the post. And that wasn't always an option through the middle portion of the season when they only had Brogdon to get downhill and you're starting, you know, Doug and Justin and Miles. And then Sabonis is having to do a lot more through the post than he did a year ago under Nate McMillan. And I think that's tiring when you can get easier shots in the pick and roll. And I don't want to go back. I'm not suggesting go back to the Nate McMillan system where there wasn't as much weak side action to distract from drives and let guards get into the paint and put pressure on the rim. But I do think it helps to mix in a little more of that, both for the bigs and to open other stuff up. So that's why I picked 73.1% because there seemed to be more of an emphasis towards the last month and a half of the season to streamline things in part because of who was available and working in new guys, but also just to let those two kind of vibe off of each other. And I thought that was neat to see that grow over the last month. So, yeah, no, I think you bring up so many great points with Karis. Um, and we've talked about this before too, but his passing, like you're just mentioning the stuff that he would, uh, he would find out of that middle pick and roll was, was awesome. Uh, and he, when he was able to get all the way to the rim, like when he, when he got all the way, all the way to the rim, instead of some of the pull-ups he would take. And again, I'm not trying to just eschew all pull-ups out, but, you know, again, we've hashed that out. But um, it opened up so much for the offense. And uh, without the we, – we've already talked about the defense, but the, the offense was so uh, – it, it it just – it created a lot more uh, – there, there was – it felt like more gravity came out of a Karras downhill drive than just about anything else this year. Um how did you feel about where his passing got to at the end of the year and the way that things were unfolding for him? Because uh, I know you and I are both not at the being comfortable with Levert as the point guard necessarily. Um, but how did you feel about his passing overall down the stretch? Well, I think if you look at his numbers, especially if you filter on PBP stats or yeah, play-by-play stats, um, most of his assists come from around the rim to the basket, whether it was Jared Allen, whether it was Sabonis. So I think having somebody with roll gravity makes a difference. He doesn't find the corners a ton, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the one thing, like you, I pointed out earlier, some things you couldn't do with Victor. You can do more with Karras as a passer than you could do with Victor. Like he's going to find more spots and make those, I mean, his number one thing, he holds onto the ball really late and then we'll just spoon feed the guy under the basket. He's great at doing that. Um, he's good at getting his guy behind the back or on his back and throwing those little scoop passes across the lane. I think my thing is I don't really have a problem with him handling the ball more. It was back when the reporting was, it was like, well, the Pacers believe in point Levert, so they don't need Brogdon and Sabonis. I'm like, don't know about that, but like, I don't know (laughs) that I would think he could be, a full-time point guard without other playmaking on the floor in some way, shape or form. And maybe like, maybe some of that got lost in translation. Maybe they were thinking they were going to get playmaking from some other place. Like, I don't know that I would feel good about that, but I'm also not on the other side of things where all of a sudden, like, because Karis made these passes, Malcolm Brogdon's like suddenly disposable and we don't think the two of them can fit. Um, I don't really understand that particular take at all. Like I, I personally want as much playmaking on the floor as possible. The more people who can dribble, shoot and pass, 
the better. And both of them, especially when you have Brogdon and he can shoot the ball off ball to complement Karras. I mean, like we've talked about before, if the Heat are blitzing Karras, it's a luxury to be able to throw the ball to Malcolm Brogdon out of that blitz and have him not only be able to hit a catch and shoot three, but also be able to attack on the second side. And, and like, I mean, just look at that Dallas series, how much more help, like imagine if Malcolm Brogdon played with Luca. I think that Luca would be like, Oh, thank goodness. I can throw the ball to somebody and they can actually, you know, attack and get into the paint as well. So I don't really know why we've suddenly decided that like Malcolm Brogdon can't run point possessions and is disposable because Karis has developed. Like I want, I don't, I don't always get to the place where other people are. We're like, well, there's only one ball. Like, no, they both can do this. I don't think that either one of them has shown that they aren't willing to pass. I mean, if anything, Karis can hunt shots in certain spots a little bit more than I'd like, but they're both willing passers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just like a, you made a great point with the Dallas series. Uh, I think there's this, and this is not to like just, you know, crap on general basketball thought, but I think um, there's been this idea recently that to be a really great team, you either have to uh, play like the Warriors did, which is having, you know, the, I think we we really discount how awesome that team was sometimes, but also um, that you have to have a, a, like a heliocentric creator and, first of all, the Pacers don't have that guy. And I think there's this idea like, oh, well, maybe Karras is that guy and this and that. And just because he's had really good stretches, I just don't, I mean, that's, that's not to um, begrudge Karras, but like he's he's not a guy who I think you can, you you want to be a, a heliocentric creator. And not, not even that he'd be bad at it, but it's more just like, he's not Luka Doncic. He's not LeBron James. And even as we saw with, with the Mavs, like, that only takes you so far. Like this team does not have a tier one talent and that's fine. Like that's why you need guys who you need as many guys who can dribble pass and shoot as possible, regardless of what level you're playing at. Like, um, like even just in this net series, like I think so much gets brought on as, Oh, it's, they have the big three, they're on un, they're they're unbeatable. And it's not even about that for me. I don't know if you agree, but to me, what makes the nets so impossible to defend is, they have Joe Harris. They have Bruce Brown. They have Blake Griffin playing in a smaller role. All of the guys who they bring off the bench are high-level thinkers of the game. They all are capable of attacking the basket. Um, they can attack closeouts. They'll take an open shot. Um, the, it just makes it so much harder to defend those to defend Kyrie, James Harden, and KD because you can't just leave those guys open on an island. You have to you have to defend Joe Harris. Like they, they ran an action yesterday and they run it a ton. It's a, like a Joe Harris flare screen for a, for a KD pick and roll. And it's like, I, if, if I remember correctly, they had to, they dropped Brooke PJ Tucker switches on to Bruce Brown, who, uh, who screens on a, on a double drag. Um, and PJ comes off of Joe Harris and then uh, Chris Middleton switches on to Kevin Durant, but then Joe Harris is wide open in the corner. It's like, Stuff like that is what makes that team so freaking difficult to beat and why you need as many guys as possible who are capable of playing that way. I mean, I, I definitely agree. They're getting a lot out of role players, but also like you have three of the best isolation players in the world and you just know that you can beat. I mean, they're basically baiting the Bucs in a lot of instances. Hey, beat us one-on-one. We're going to switch mm-hmm. everything and the Bucs are willingly giving into that. And to your point, like the Pacers do not have Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving. So I don't really know why like... I don't really want to start the Karis or Brogdon dialogue when, when like, 
who are you exchanging for Brogdon? That's that's gonna like a, a just a shooter's gonna make the Pacers better than Brogdon, who can also shoot a high rate on catch and shoot threes. I I don't know. Yeah. But um, his over under that I picked is something that you already touched on. Um, it's twenty eight, which that is the percentage of shots in the non restricted area next season. So would you take the over or the under there? And here's some context. Um, in 18-19, he was at 28.5 of his shots in the non-restricted area. 19-20, he was at 29.6. And this year, including the games with that he played for Brooklyn, he was at 29.3. With the Pacers, he was at 28.8. Um, the thing that I'm getting at here is he he doesn't shoot a high percentage on these shots, but he takes a lot of them. Uh there was only by the time he joined the Pacers on March 13th, the only people who took more shots in the paint non-restricted area than Karis Levert were Jokic and Trey Young. Like he takes a lot there, but for the year he shot 41% on those. Um, he's only shot. He's never shot better than 41%. The rest of his career, his first season, he was at 40%. He was at 33, 39.2 and 38.7. So and yet in the restricted area with the Pacers, he shot 62%, which is stellar after he was after he debuted following the trade. So you would like to see him exchange some of those looks, like you said, when he doesn't get fully to the basket for more looks at the rim. His free throw rate did inch up in May when, like I said, he had a little bit more room to freewheel. But uh, you'd want to see him get to the rim a little bit more so that on the nights when these shots don't drop, which it seems like there's quite a bit of scoring variance in that range for him. Some nights he's really on it and other nights he isn't that you could weather those storms a little bit because also as like, I feel like we've brought up a million times. He's, he's never, I mean, he's in the low thirties every season of his career as a catch and shoot three guy. So that's not something that's really gonna, you know, help balance any of that out. So where would you go on the 28% 28 as the percentage of shots in the non-restricted area next season? Do you think he'll get more than that or less? Uh, I think gauging historically, the answer would be no, but being an optimist, I'm going to say yes. I, uh, I, I really think like the idea is if he can get there even more, that's, that's doing so much for the offense. And I hope that that can become part of his game. Because the, the like one of the things that I I'm writing on it right now actually and it'll be up later today on on Indy Cornrows there's just this tendency to attribute that guys who take a lot of slight I don't like just immediately labeling them as inefficient but like just less efficient shots um, that there's like this idea that they choose to take those shots but really a lot of the time it's you know guys just have limitations in getting to the rim. But with Karras, he's one of the guys who I look at. I'm like, okay, he is a guy who I think could get to the rim a lot more, like we're mentioning. Um, I'm going to take the over just because I'm I'm, I'm hopeful that he does hit the over because that would be huge for his game. You mean the under because you want him to take less shots in the restricted area? Oh yes, yes, that's what I meant. Yes, so you take the under. Um, I think some of it for me will be, you know, who is the coach? Maybe I mean because yeah. I'd need to see what type of sets and stuff they're going to run, but. This is a continuing trend. It's been going for three years now. So I think that's that's kind of who he is. I think there would have to be a lot of emphasis from whatever the coaching staff is. Like, hey, we need you to be trying to draw more contact. 
and and some of it too can be a product of the defense like the heat was willing to give up floaters in the one game that they played um if you're ben simmons and you're ducking under all the Kara screens you're not going to be getting all of the way to the basket and then it is helpful that he's at least comfortable taking those shots in those types of games so some of it will also depend on how the pacers defend him but i guess since i was generous with the 28 i'll be on the positive and hope that he can get that back down um below that but it hasn't happened to this point in three seasons but I think that's where it needs to shift because I'm not completely convinced. I don't know where you are with the catch and shoot threes, but even in May, like he pulled his overall three point percentage up to 40% in May, but that's because he was shooting 44% on 3.2 pull-ups per game. His catch and shoot was still at 33% for that month. So he's generally in the low thirties there. And it's, it's weird that somebody shoots worse on the easier shots, but I think sometimes it's like, he's just not ready to shoot when he catches it. Yeah. It doesn't quite have his feet set, but um, that's pretty much been the way his entire career. So if I had to pick one that I think will change, it's that he will take more shots at the rim in exchange for some of these non-restricted area looks. So I'm going to go with you and take the under. I think that is a smart decision. Um, I'm very hopeful too, but regardless, I uh, just as a side note, I really enjoyed watching Karras's game. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he's such a fun player. Like uh, for somebody to make the interior passes that he does at his size and his length, it's pretty remarkable. Like I, that's one of my favorite aspects of his game. Like he navigates the paint so well. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to watch more of it next year. Are you ready oh. to talk about, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, in a very disorienting way. And that also like, for me, after I had watched the Pacers run all of their sets like millions of times and not that they didn't have variety and that a lot of the offense wasn't like more nuanced than it was a year ago, just after a while that can get kind of boring to watch. But Karras is like one of the people that can put his own spin on those actions and he can make it look completely different even though they're running the same thing. So I wrote an article about that, but I just wanted to end it on a positive note for him. So yeah, let's move on to Malcolm. Definitely. All right, so... My play for Malcolm Brogdon, believe it or not, I pulled it from another Pistons game, just like I did with Edmund Sumner last last week. Um, so envision it's second quarter, uh, five minutes and 20 seconds left on the clock. Pacers are coming down in transition. Uh, some some early running early offense. Karras has the ball in his hands, drives to the rim, collapses the defense, kicks the ball out to Malcolm in the left-hand corner. Uh, Malcolm drives to the closeout gets an easy look at the rim finishes. Um, that is the play for me. It is really rudimentary and simple, but the biggest thing for me was once Karras came in and, and he started playing, and like we've talked about before, it's not that he was really the point guard or initiating offense more like Malcolm's usage went down a little bit, but he's mostly initiating a, a lot of stuff still. Um, the biggest thing for me was just Malcolm got way easier looks at the rim. And that was so important for his game this year because as has been an issue his whole time in Indiana until uh, Karras got here or until Karras started playing, um, he really was just struggling at the rim. So just for reference, and this is it feeds into my stat, uh, before Karras started playing, so it was March 13th, Malcolm Brogdon was finishing 50% at the rim, which was bottom 15% among guards in the NBA. Um, and just an overall really rough mark. Uh, and it's not even like it was just so painful because he's so good at getting to the rim. 
but the problem is just getting the separation he needs to actually get his shot off uh, and getting that deceleration to get his shot off. And, and that was a struggle for him last year. After Karras got introduced to the offense, Malcolm shot 59% at the rim on granted less looks. He was, he, he got to the rim. I think 41% of uh, his shots were at the rim before Karras integrated into the offense and 32% of his shots came at the rim uh, per clean the glass after uh, but shooting 59% at the rim, which was back to like almost league average, was a huge jump. And it felt like something that was real because uh, everything was just easier for him. Malcolm is so good attacking on, on second side actions and just getting easier looks that generate easier points for him was really good for him and just a boon for the offense in general. And and so, yeah, that feeds into my, my playing stat and just finding that uh, finding more of that synergy between him and Levert was huge, but also just getting him off ball was huge too. And to throw in a second stat, I mean, he took more corner threes in the last 20 games than he did the entire beginning of the season before, uh, before Karras was healthy um, and shot like ridiculously well on them too, like unsustainable level. Like he shot like 60% on corner threes the last month and a half of basketball, which, you know, it's just not going to happen, but um, getting, those off ball easier looks was, was huge for his game and, and his efficiency. Right. And there just wasn't a lot of options to do that. I mean, they tried yeah. to make sense some minutes um, and stretches where he would play with TJ McConnell to get him off ball. But I think an underrated aspect too, of if you have Karras and Brogdon for a full season next year is just everything that does for Brogdon's overall energy stores. Cause like you're mm -hmm. saying, he can take possessions where Karras is going to do more with the ball in his hands. He can get easier shots off the ball than having to constantly be racking up the high time of possession. He's kind of had prior to Karras's arrival and last year with the Pacers, just having another guy who can get downhill. I mean, their starting lineup for months, like I said earlier was Justin and, and Doug at times and miles and Sabonis and, other than running playmaking through Brogdon and, and Sabonis, there's just not a lot of options with that particular lineup and and how that might have impacted his overall like wear and tear as the season went on. And his, like you said, he shot better. I mean, his overall volume on catch and shoots didn't change a ton. Mm -hmm. I think he took about 3.6 after Levert and 2.8 before, but that's an, an extra attempt and he shot a much higher percentage on him. The two of them didn't um, assist each other a lot, but like you said, like if Brogdon brings up the floor, gives it to Karras and then they, they can run some sort of action with Karras and Brogdon can relocate. I think that just makes his life generally easier. And then to kind of piggyback off of what I said before, because the Pacers were this team that put so much pressure on the rim and ran a high motion defense earlier in the year, um, lots of teams are just ducking under picks against Brogdon. Like the prior year, teams only ducked under against him less than 10% of the time, 9.3. This year, that was closer to 13. And that's that's like nowhere near what it would be for TJ McConnell and other guys. But it still is an uptick. And he only shot 34% on shots when he shot when people went under a screen. So when teams like Utah and New Orleans were doing that during that kind of really bogged down stretch the Pacers played, if you had had Karras back then, you could have been like, okay, we're going to give Karras some reps, let Sabonis flip some angles with Karras playing middle pick and roll. We're going to put, like you're saying, Brogdon over in the corner for a little bit of stretches and try to loosen some of this up. Instead, when Royce or Neal or whoever it is was ducking under the picks, it just turned into, okay, now Sabonis is diving to the block and our only other option to create shots for people 
is to try to post him against Rudy Gobert. If you have both of these guys, which is why I'm very pro as many playmakers as possible, it just makes it easier for everybody around. And I think that, you know, we talked about it a lot with how many minutes Brogdon was playing earlier in the year and, and the type of load that he was carrying and wondering, like, not only how that would impact him as the season went on, but his overall in-game energy when they got to the fourth quarter at times. And I'm just very interested to see how that goes, not only once they get to have the chemistry to play together for a full season, but once you also add TJ Warren into that mix, mm-hmm. I think it just makes things you know easier for a lot of people. And I'm not as worried about having mouths to feed as I am of, you know, good. There's more people who can take some of this weight. Yeah. Definitely. And so that actually feeds into my over-under. Uh, and the, the number for my over-under is three. And the, the question is, where does Malcolm fall in field goal attempts per game on the roster next season? Because uh, since the 13th, uh, he was second on the team in shots taken behind Karras. Uh, Domas was just behind him at, at, uh, at third. How how does that look with TJ Warren back on the roster next year? Because that's one of the things that I've really wondered about, and we've talked about it a little bit too. Um, I mean, it's so tough to project that because, I mean, Malcolm found more as an – Malcolm just had his best se- season as an individual scorer in the NBA. Domas just had his best season as an individual scorer in the NBA and still has a lot of room to grow on that uh, in that aspect. Um, and, and now Karras is in and he took the most shots on the team. And I think rightfully so, considering the way that he was driving the offense and, and his own scoring gravity. But then you look at TJ and what he was doing in the bubble. And I was talking to one of my friends yesterday, um, just like going back and talking about some of the bubble games. It was like it, it really felt like TJ was starting to find. Uh, and I, again, this is not a TJ Warren pod, but just given, you know, TJ was really finding. Uh, new avenues to score that he hadn't really taken advantage of, at least not on a, on a consistent basis um, with the Pacers, you know, firing from behind screens, running a lot more pick and roll, uh, just doing more big wing scoring stuff than, than being a play finisher like he previously had. So it's it's just a lot of hypothesis. But like, would you take the over or under on, on Malcolm being third in the pecking order next year? Hmm. Well, last year, TJ Warren took the most shots on the team Mm -hmm. and Brogdon was slightly behind at TJ Warren was at 14.9 and Malcolm Brogdon was at 13.8. And like you said, this year, he and Karras finished with about the same amount of shot attempts with Sabonis behind by about three. Um, I mean, some of it's a little bit tough to project because I mean, the things you were just talking about, a lot of the reasons why TJ Warren was exploding. I mean, I shouldn't say a lot. Some of the reasons why TJ Warren was exploding is because he was playing at the four and some of the ways that they're using him. I don't see that they're going to use him with this as the starting lineup. If this is how they start next year, like you're not going to put be putting TJ Warren in the mid post. I wouldn't think because I mean, that was a little bit, unless he had a mismatch that he could just absolutely bully. There's not a lot of reason to put him in the mismatch in the mid post rather than Sabonis, given that TJ Warren's passing is nowhere near Sabonis's. Um, you're not going to be running four or five pick and roll with TJ at the four. If, if miles and Sabonis are out there. So um, it would depend somewhat on the coaching and how much they want to stagger. And then also 
from the coaching and this is where the human management comes in guys are going to have to there's going to have to be some sacrifices made when you add everybody back i would lean towards and i've said this many times on the pod i think that you're going to be at your best when sabonis is averaging like seven or eight assists you know i think he could even up that based on what we saw in the month of may i think he averaged like six six and a half assists this year i don't have that number in front of me but somewhere around there i think you're going to be at your best when he's averaging more assists and his scoring goes like i I don't need a lot more scoring out of sabonis he's so such a good connector Mm. you can run stuff through him he can free up tj warren with tj warren playing around him at times cutting over screens i think tj's great moving from left to right um I think that I don't think it's going to work exactly the same way that it did in the bubble, unless he's back playing at the four with one of the two bigs, but I would lean towards because some of the language they're using about TJ Warren, like talking about him being a leader and a top scoring option. And, you know, it will depend on his foot health, but yeah, I would lean towards, Karras and TJ will probably get more shot attempts than Malcolm Brogdon, but I would be okay if Brogdon still got more than Sabonis. If Sabonis fell in at four, I think that's something that he would have to be willing to do, um, which would be a big ask from somebody who arguably like has been your best passer, scorer, and rebounder and a two-time all-star. But if he's facilitating stuff up top for those three guys – and he's content doing it. Like I, I would be okay with TJ Warren and Karis and Brogdon having more shot attempts than him. I mean, that's basically what it's already been the last two seasons, but yeah. So what you're saying three people ahead of him, that's the over under. Uh, I had the over under at him being third in shots total. I mean, shots, uh, shots per game. Oh yeah, so I'll take I'll take the under because I I just I suspect that TJ Warren and Karras at a minimum are going to take more shots than him. I would guess. I mean, we'll see how all of them feel about that and like I said it would go to coaching and and being able to empower all of them at the same time and get them to their spots, but I'm not saying it's going to be a wide gap, but that's where I would shake out at because Warren and Lavert are more natural scorers and Brogdon and Sabonis have the added benefit that they can kind of do more things in addition to scoring, they can also play, make and facilitate. So it makes more sense for Karis and Warren to have more of that score first mentality and shift the other two into more playmaking. If that makes sense. I mean, that kind of sounds mm-hmm. like a talk radio commentary, but um, that's where I would lean. Yeah. I don't think it would impact their touches for me. Like I still, I don't have any problem with Sabonis having the touches that he has because for one, like not to go on a big tangent here, but sometimes it's like, Oh, he is averaging 90 touches. Well, okay. Here's a play that they run. They come down, they enter it to Sabonis at the elbow. He immediately tosses it to the guy to attack downhill. There's two touches. If they don't get a shot, they toss it back to him for a get action. There's a third touch. And then sometimes he might need to set a screen for that guy and then maybe they commit two to the ball. So now he's on the roll. There's a fourth touch. Like, I don't think that's a bad thing. If he gets four touches on a possession like that and he's as good as reading the floor as he is like that's, there's a difference between doing that and being like, we are going to feed this guy in every possession and force feed 20 shots to him. Like that's not the same thing. So I don't have a problem if Sabonis and Brogdon still get a lot of touches, but I would lean toward that TJ and Levert are going to get more shots, especially TJ because he's not going to facilitate offense. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I, I'm just so interested to see how that plays out. Cause like you mentioned, uh, it's easy for us to picture stuff and, and seeing how it would work out after watching all the games, but just given, like you mentioned the language in the press conference, it's like, I don't, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe they view it differently and, and we'll see how it plays out on court, but um, definitely something to, to take note of and um, be interested yeah, I mean, about a, editing. And- just to, to tie a nice bow on it. Like it's a matter of me still not fully. And we have not seen this. This is why it's so hard to talk about. There has not been a minute of action for these five individuals. So it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around it completely because it's not as easy as just imagining Karis as Victor, because it's, I mean, we didn't even see that lineup more than like what a hundred minutes last year, I think it was. Yeah. So it's, it's tough to know. And it's goes back to my whole thing of like, I like all five of these players and the individual things that all five of them do. It's just, do they actually fit doing those things all at the same time? Like, I still don't fully know the answer to that and whether, you know, maybe you swap some of those pieces to get more roster balance or where you go, but that's kind of why I kind of understand where they're coming from when you don't feel like you have to be in a place where, like, I know it's fake trade season, <laughs> as we both know, but um, I don't feel like you have to be in a place where, oh, we just have to sell some of these guys off immediately. Like, without yeah. me knowing fully what the locker room situation is, like, maybe they feel differently in that sense. But if Kevin Pritchard's saying that they like each other off the court and you have some a coach in there who can get buy-in from all the five of them, I understand why you might want to see how it looks and how they're all blending together before, like – I mean, unless some player comes up that you know is going to make you better, like guaranteed that, oh, well, we we have to move a big or we have to move, you know, Brogdon or Levert to try to get more balance. Like, I'm not at that place yet because I literally have not seen this happen yet. Yeah. So yeah, after, exactly. after all of that, <laughs> on to TJ McConnell. Let me get my TJ McConnell notes if I can locate them. Oh, yes, here we are. Okay, so I apologize once again. People know I linked it in our post that we're going to have. I TJ McConnell has a place in my heart. I really enjoyed watching the way that he made people guard him despite ducking unders this year. I enjoy his handle, um, his overall feel, his ability to fil- facilitate offense off the bench. Clearly, all the steals he racked up to lead the league in total steals off the bench. That is all great. But I am bringing up something that I think is worth talking about because we never got to talk about it, given that he's a free agent this year, because they didn't make it into a playoff series where we would have seen a team making adjustments. And I will say that overall, I think that this particular system on both ends of the floor fits TJ McConnell, like to a T. Yeah. I mean, Nate Bjorkren's asking him to be aggressive and disruptive, and that's pretty much his jam. And at the other end of the court, like what I said earlier about Brogdon, they're running more stuff through the sidelines. And while Brogdon's pretty good at like the fake pistol and other stuff, like TJ McConnell just annihilates a lot of these sets. Like I said, a lot of times when they run it against bench units, at least I'm not necessarily saying this against starters, but when he comes in off the bench, I'm just like, oh, there's the TJ McConnell play. Somebody's going to score or they're going to run the ghost play and he's going to find a cutter and, and keep his dribble alive. And somebody's going to score. Like I, I, it's very easy to feel comfortable in that. And I don't know how you feel, but I can point to probably four games this year that they do not win unless TJ McConnell plays. The oh, game probably, in, yeah, even more than that. I yeah. mean, the Cavs game is a good one to point yeah, out. The, the Cavs game when he had the triple-double with steals, you do not win that game without TJ McConnell. Um, the one in Atlanta, 
that they played. He was a huge, which single game plus minus is garbage. And I apologize for even bringing it up, but he was a huge positive in that game when they were running some box and one late against uh, Trey Young. And they gave up open shots out of that, but I digress. But um, uh, there's another one that I was trying to think of off the top of my head. I'll have to think of it later. But anyways, does lots of fantastic things. But because they only played the two play-in games and those two play-in games were very weird, um, it felt like the Hornets gave up. After they got in the 15-point hole, it just felt like the Hornets gave up to me. There was tons of shot variants, and then they came out with the same autopilot defensive game plan against the Wizards without Karras or TJ or Miles and they're injured and then they just got blown out. So it wasn't like there was exaggerated game plans there is my main point. So Mm -hmm. I look at this third quarter or the fourth quarter, I mean, against the Miami Heat and the third game that they played that the Pacers lost and TJ McConnell's playing in the fourth quarter with Justin, Doug, Sabonis and Karras and they come out of a timeout and they're running Karras off of Iverson and people can see this particular possession isn't in the article, but they ran Karras off of Iverson a lot in this game to try to let him weave through the two picks to try to shed bam on the blitzes. So they run him on Iverson and Karras comes off. TJ gives it to him and Sabonis comes to set the ball screen like they did. And because Sabonis has like roll slip gravity, bam goes with him. And now the shot clock's running down. Bam's released from the blitz. So Karras is being defended one-on-one by Tyler Hero. But wait, TJ McConnell's off ball and Andre Iguodala comes off all the way off of TJ McConnell to double Karras. And Karras just has to chuck a three from like three feet behind the three-point line. So that's like a hard double without even a screen because they're just like, oh, well, if we leave TJ McConnell open and we know the clock's running down, we don't really care. And I will say that if the clock situation wasn't what it is, TJ's gotten really good at mastering the go and catch and getting ahead of speed to try to attack that. But this goes back to what was a lingering issue for the Pacers a lot of the year that like they had this high motion racked up a lot of distance traveled on offense and defense, but you'd get to the fourth quarter as we know. And sometimes they had a tendency to do this where they just get, stagnant and if a player like tj mcconnell against that type of coverage isn't cutting and making the defense respect him then you're creating a problem for karis so i cheated a little bit and i have another play it's two plays i apologize america or world or wherever you're oh my god how can you do this to us (laughs) yeah so then the heat switch it up and play two three zone And now Aaron is in with Edmund and TJ and Doug and Sabonis in the fourth quarter, which I think we can question that lineup a little bit in a close close game against the Miami Heat. But they're playing 2-3 zone, and Aaron enters the ball to Sabonis in the middle of the floor. And the gravity here is hilarious. Like, all five Heat players are looking at Sabonis with um, Bam as his main defender. And Edmund tries to cut, but they cover it because of how they cover the corners. So my point in sharing this play is that TJ McConnell is at the top of the key and Andre Iguodala smashes all the way down from TJ McConnell at the top of the key to double Sabonis. So now he's being swarmed and the person open logically is TJ McConnell from three. So that's who he passes to, but he's not going to shoot. So he reverses it to Aaron and Aaron ends up having to chuck up a contested three from the same spot as Karras did on the prior possession. So because of this, like some of it is, is semantics because hopefully if you're healthy, you're probably not going to be needing to play TJ McConnell at the end of a close game, especially if it's a playoff game 
This year I looked up and he played 50% of the team's clutch minutes and for good reason in a lot of games, like having more playmakers out there. He makes smart plays when before Karras came out, if teams were ducking under, he's so used to that, that he just knows how to wheel against it. But there are limitations here. So knowing that possessions like that happened against a more keyed in, the Heat were playing really good defense at that portion of the season. How do you feel about that? Are you worried? Does it concern you? Or are you just like, oh, well? Um, I wouldn't outright say that it concerns me, but it's not. Um, and this is not meant as like a, a slate to TJ or anything, but it's just like it's not awesome. Is that is that an acceptable way to answer? I don't I don't have a great answer on it. I mean, like you mentioned, TJ was so important to what this team did this year. Um, but it's the it's imperfect is, is the best way I have to put it. I guess I yeah, I agree. I guess my point would be, would you be fine retaining him in free agency? And you might be like, I don't know that I'm necessarily not. This is just something I've tossed around. Like if this were to happen in a playoff series, not even during clutch time, but just in the minutes as he was out there, because as you will recall, when they played the heat the year prior, Nate McMillan did end up not playing him in the final game. He did not play. So would you be fine retaining him as your backup point guard to do all the great things he did during the regular season? If there's a chance that that's going to be diminished in the playoffs and he might not play in the playoffs against this type of coverage. So I guess my answer to that would be, I mean, just guessing where, like, I have no idea what he's going to get paid this off season. And I think that really changes things for me. Like if he's a guy who's going to get the full MLE, which I'm not expecting that um, because he feels like somebody to me who just like we've talked about, I think this Pacers team was uh, like their style of play and what they asked him to do was like, that was the max version of TJ McConnell, like the, the exact, like a great, great environment and fit for him. Like as, as rough as this fit was for a lot of guys, this was perfect for TJ. Um, so I think I can imagine keeping him and he's, like I don't like saying the word cheaper when talking about a player, but his he's he will stay for less money in Indiana, or it's uh, easier to keep him around than than say paying Doug. Um, I think for what he does in the regular season, and just given like as much as, um, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but just in general, like I think there's a tendency to say, oh well, it's the regular season, what does it matter? Like having a guy who can help you win, uh, or who wins you outright, like like we talked about the Cleveland game, like. This, this team maybe doesn't even make the play-in without T.J. McConnell because of what he did this year. Right, you got to make um, the playoffs first. Exactly. So I think I would be willing to, if you're paying him like the taxpayers mid-level or something like that, which this team's not a taxpaying, but just money-wise, like if you're paying like five or six million dollars for T.J. McConnell, like, yeah, he's really good and does exactly what you need out of a backup point guard except for shoot. But I think a lot of uh, – like you look at a lot of the issues that that came up in the playoffs the first time. And I think maybe you could look at, okay, well, I think at some point it's just, you got to put it on the coach. Okay. You have to, and this is not me trying to like belabor any Nate points for, for either Nate, but like you have to find ways to make it work in the playoffs as the coach, like you put together the talent and you get there. All right, time to figure it out. Um, And maybe that's a reductive way of putting it. I think that his, just what he does does diminish in the playoffs a little bit. I mean, he had that issue with Philly too, um, but getting there is the is the is the first step, which I think will some people will bemoan a little bit, but it, it's true. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I think I would definitely not be averse to him being around next year, especially too. Cause like, again, we're not in the locker room, but just given everything that, that we know and, and get to see, it feels like TJ is a really important part of, of that locker room. Right. For me, it becomes a question of, you know, he does so many good things when he's on ball and probing, but in a playoff series, would you feel good of him doing that at, at the cost of taking the ball out of the hands of Karras or Brogdon? Oh, no, definitely not. Especially if you're staggering Karras and Brogdon as I would lean toward in a playoff series. So I guess my thought on it is just like thinking back to how much the Kings paid Corey Joseph after Corey Joseph really showed out as a defender for the Pacers. And then, I mean, his contract was a vast overpay. So it would depend on how much, uh, because the Pacers with Corey Joseph, despite all the great things he did defensively, I mean, a lot of times their numbers from an impact standpoint were better in the starting lineup with Corey than they were with Darren Collison. But then, you know, you're playing the Celtics and nobody's guarding him on the weak side and they're putting two goalies in the paint for Sabonis and Turner to roll or pop. And, and that limited what they could do on the weak side. And with TJ, you're going to have him on ball. You need to have him on ball because of the stuff that he does. So it would really depend on the price point for me, because I do think, I mean, and I don't want to put a lot of this on Bjorken. Cause like I said, they do have good things that they do as a cutting team. They just go through stretches where they don't do it. I don't know if that's a fatigue issue or, or what, because when they're buzzing around, they're at their best. In the prior two games against Miami, they did stuff like this, and it worked really well. Here in the fourth quarter, they went like full-on clogged toilet in this particular game and could not score, and some of the lineups were a little bit iffy. Like I, like I said, I don't really need Aaron and Edmund and, and McConnell playing all at the same time at the end against a stiff heat defense, but um, it would be the price point. But going on to that and all the wonderful things he did on ball, my one number is – 56.6. And that is, this number is just fantastic. I know what number this is actually, but go ahead. Oh, you do? No, I go ahead so. and ruin it. I don't care. Is this what he took uh, from short mid-range? Th- like, this is like his percentage in the non-restricted area. Yes. So after after everything we just said about Karras, and this is why doing these three players at the same time is kind of interesting because going back to what we said about their ability to play on the floor together, like they each kind of do something really well that the other one doesn't. So... Yeah, TJ shot 56% in the paint, non-restricted area. Do you want to guess where that ranked in the league amongst the oh, he was just about one? He was uh, just about top five, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. So the only people that shot better than him from that range this year on at least 100 attempts was Robin Lopez, Rashawn Holmes, and Jokic. So my bad, he's fourth. I don't know why I said fifth. Yeah, only three bigs. And then there's TJ McConnell. So that's fantastic. And that's why I wrote the article that I did about him. Because the other clip that I really wanted to use here, but I felt like we needed to talk about this, was they were playing the Knicks and Miles Turner was the screener in the corner. And TJ is just so good when he's in the corner. He'll 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 act like he's going to use that screen and then he rejects it to get his guy moving so that he can get them back over the top of the screen with his handle. And then he attacked the paint and dished it to miles for a shot right underneath the rim. And that was a great play. So, I mean, like you said, I just thought of the other game that I was going to talk about. They do not win that road game in San Antonio when he makes those big mid range shots in overtime, mind you, unless TJ McConnell plays. So this is the two sides of the coin. I'm with you. If they brought him back, I certainly wouldn't be disappointed as long as it's not like an outlandish Corey Joseph Kings contract. 
because you know if you got the Corey joseph king's contract <laughs> i would i would be yeah. very uh yeah. very distraught uh, I and love that's, TJ. The thing. I, that's the thing i don't think kevin pritchard would ever do that yeah so exactly we don't, we don't really need to project that far but yeah definitely i do think um, it's worth discussing you know down the road if it is in a playoff series depending upon who the matchup would be how playable he would be but mm-hmm. um, yeah certainly so my over under then which should be an easy one is 0.5 how many games left with the pacers uh i think i'm gonna take the over just because um i I'm, i mean the, the, just my read it's way harder to keep doug mcdermott i don't think that they would just let tj walk unless he gets a massive offer and i I mean, I haven't done a whole ton of perusing around the rest of the league, but I'm not expecting TJ to be like a hot commodity for a team. But I mean, you could see like even Atlanta right now, Atlanta does not have a backup point guard. Like Lou Williams runs backup point for them, but he's not really a point guard. And um, he has his, his defensive limitations for sure. And they really struggled trying to find a backup point guard all year. Rondo really didn't work out for them. Um, and they have, some cap space that they could wiggle around. So you could see them paying TJ McConnell and Nate. And we McMillan know that Nate there. McMillan loves TJ McConnell. Yeah, um, exactly. So it's like, I, I mean, you could see that, but I just, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I I'm, I'm willing to take the over on TJ. Yeah. I'm willing to take the over as well because he did. I mean, he's very good when he does interviews, but he flat out said he didn't have any complaints, not about his teammates, not about the front office, not about that he loves the city of Indianapolis. So um, that sounds like I, like Kevin Pritchard said, that he has two feet in if, if he wants, if if the money and everything works out. Um, I do think he's way better positioned than he was after he left Philly to get other offers. Yes, um, yeah, definitely. I think he's going to get a lot more calls. So we shall see. But I, I feel safer about taking the over there. Yeah, but, that wraps up these three players. And now I get to start biting my nails. I'm <laughs> very excited for this. Like, one. I feel like I'm an NBA player at the combine and I'm <laughs> going to have to figure out a way to get out of a blender as a pencil. Like what, what is happening? <laughs> okay. So picture this. All right. There, this is a, as, as we know, this is a, would you rather question? And I toiled away to figure out what would be very difficult for me to choose between, um, so this is a this is a something you would have to do every day. So we're gonna say that it's uh, it's similar length, I guess, uh, in, in watching. And it's between you have to watch this one thing every day, which in on its own not great. But so it's it's a it's a little bit more of a punishing would you rather than the one you gave me last week. And the question is, from one of my all time favorite playoff series, the 04 Pistons Pacers playoff series, uh, which is what I would like. That's like. If you look up rock fight in a dictionary, that is what, what comes up. The 04 Pistons Pacers series. I, if I remember correctly, I think five players in the entire series shot above 40% from the field, um, which that's a uh, burn in the nets. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you're either watching every single missed shot of the 04 Pacers Pistons playoff series. Like, let's just imagine that it's like an NBA uh, NBA.com shots thing. You have to watch every single shot that missed from the series, or you have to watch. I, I I would say a highlight reel, but it's not really a highlight. But you have to watch a mon. We'll call it a montage. You have to watch a montage of every time that Roy Hibbert fell on the floor uh, in a, in a Pacers uniform. 
Okay, well, first of all, can we just say that I already told you from my Fear of Jello podcast that if I had to pick between watching how the Jello is made and whether how many times Roy Hibbert fell on the floor, that I would pick Roy Hibbert falling on the floor. And it might be interesting with the Roy Hibbert thing just to figure out and try to deduce. I feel like I would be putting on like my Chris Herring hat and figuring out <laughs> why did he fall on the floor yeah. so much. And then I would write some column. I would pitch it to 538 and be like, hey, here's all the reasons why Roy Hibbert fell down on the block for inexplicable reasons. But um, the 0405 series is interesting because – um, during quarantine, I don't know about you, but I, I did take some time to watch some older games, not a lot because I was still like being myself and watching like every possession of Sabonis as a point guard and then watching every baseline two TJ Warren took and stuff like that. But it is like almost jarring to watch games, even just from the early 2000s of watching teams run floppy all the time and how much closer they're setting the screens to the basket. Like how, you know, Reggie Miller or Jalen Rose or whoever it is, or even Ray Allen as early as like the 2010 series against the Lakers. Like they're setting those picks right at the blocks and then guys are just curling them. Like they were never setting like wide staggers and having guys curl off to three as much. Like if they got there, it was because like Reggie had to step back. Like, like Rick Smith wasn't setting a pick further out in the uh, one game that I watched from, I think it was the 98 series against the mm-hmm. Bulls. I don't remember, but I might pick that just because I would like to look at how much different offenses have changed. And then on the flip side of it, like this is my incredibly nerdy, boring answer. Um, I think sometimes we look at these two eras of like monoliths of time, like teams back then never did anything modern. And teams do now. And like, I remember Mike Prada, who I really enjoy and have done some articles with one day, he showed a clip of the Celtics from, I want to say it was the the eighties running a Spain pick and roll. Like, like a lot of these concepts did exist beforehand and some things that teams did back then we still do like the conversation that was on TNT the one night, like, I don't know how often you can suffer through the TNT studio show, Uh, but, but if you can, my, you know, my favorite bit is the antagonized Candace Parker only not. That's my least favorite bit. How we just have to antagonize every take that she had before she, you know, went back to her job, which is playing professional basketball and Shaq was making a comic. They were talking about how to defend Jokic. And and he said, why can't you pre-switch it? And she very intelligently is like, well, you can't pre-switch it because he's such a good passer. You're going to run out of rotations to make. And in the aftermath of that, like she did school him in that session. But there are still teams that pre-switch. You just don't want to do it against Nikola Jokic. And we mm-hmm. turned it into like, oh, pre-switching is a thing from a bygone era. I'm like, no, I saw the Celtics pre-switch a time or two against the Pacers in the playoffs two years ago. So um, I think I would pick the 0405 series just because I would like to look at different things like that. I think, like I said, we look at it too much as monoliths of like, well, that was in the old rules and the, the old NBA and that no longer has any use now or versus, you know, I don't like the modern NBA because there's too much floor spacing and three-point shooting when, oh, by the way, they used to do things like that too. Um, so do I, I do, pass the combine question test? There like, is one stipulation. So it's the 0304 Eastern Conference Finals, not the 0405 uh, oh. semis, which makes a slight, just to, to give you forewarning, Jamal Tinsley had a 39% true shooting in that series. 
And somehow that was not the worst out of the rotation players uh, because as awesome as, as Ron Artest was defensively, um, which that is one of my, because I watched yeah. this series, I watched the series back um, and watching Ron Artest chase Rip Hamilton over screens is something to behold. Like somebody his exactly. size should not have to be chasing somebody over screens, but he did it remarkably well. Um, but <laughs> this is, these are his shooting splits in the series. 29.8% from the field, 19.4% from three and 70% from the line. So the line was great, but uh, yeah, that was a, uh, it was this not is Jamal Tinsley's numbers. That was, me- that was metal world pieces. Oh, shooting okay. splits in that, in that series. Um, oh me, oh my. Very tough scene. He shot, uh, yeah, he, he barely scored as many points as he shot from the field, as he shot percentage-wise from the field, which was, uh, that is, it, it is tough. But it's still a very fun series to go back and watch because the defense is really cool. And I get a lot of joy out of watching Rip Hamilton run a mile and a half in one possession for a 17-foot curl. But um, that's not exactly. everybody. I'm sure they were running floppy a bunch of times and they ran a lot of close to the basket. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think defense is fun to watch. And for that reason alone, I might find this therapeutic mark after the I'm season that you. we just watched. I might need to sit here and watch that just so that I can be like, oh, yes, that's what defense looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's kind of like a whitewashing after everything that just happened in this this season. But I agree. I think I would watch all of that series as well because it's uh, it's just enjoyable to me. Um and I don't like seeing Roy Hibbert fall. Luckily, he never was like super injury prone, uh, at least not anything like career ending. So, um, but, you know, it was it was always like a very, very much so like a why. Why did you fall? Um, but I agree, Caitlin. Uh, do you have anything exciting or, or new that you want to talk about before we get out of here? No, I do not. Um, other than I think who is next up for when we reconvene for this on Friday are the wing guys so i think we'll have doug justin and jeremy lamb for everyone to listen to us over analyze on friday i am looking forward to that and i and do have a, a couple side projects rather. between then but yes i'm now gonna have to come up with a would you rather question which twitter might have to help me with <laughs> so oh, i think perfect. i've exhausted my only good one and i need to make sure like i'm going to evaluate you not on your writing performance or podcast performance but much like combine my would you rather I'm going to judge you by your would you rather answers because that's going to tell me a lot more about your future in in NBA media. Wow! Oh man, this is a uh, I, I better start prepping. Somebody find me a uh, a would you rather for dummies. You're, in order I, to do your prep, I expect that you will have watched every episode of Psych and eaten a full box of Outshine popsicles before we get back to this on Friday. An entire box of Outshine popsicles? Like we have. What, Do you realize how many of these then? I go through? Like you only get, I think, eight popsicles in a box. I could easily eat two of those per day. I guess. And if I, I stay up late, I could eat another one. Like last night, I could have gotten up in the middle of the night and eaten a popsicle and been perfectly happy about it. Well, I'll have to see if I can get some outstanding popsicles then, because maybe I'll maybe we'll do that. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to watch all of Psych between now and then, but. Um, I will try and get some Australian popsicles. We'll, we'll see what's hitting. Give the people what they want. Uh, it seems like you're the one who wants it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone else in the world probably wants the combination of you watching Psych and popsicles, but well, we I'll, uh, I have to do it now. So we'll uh, we'll make it happen. 
Caitlin, this was fun as always. Uh, to everyone listening, of course, thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to rate and review the show and, and check everything else out that we've got going on. I have a draft profile. She's profile, What I can't even speak today. But draft profile dropping later today. Finally, it is a uh, way longer. Like, and by saying that it's way longer, I mean way longer uh, than it is supposed to be. Um, it I got way too in the weeds, and I apologize in advance. And I hope you enjoy it. But it got very granular. Um, there's a lot of video, there's a lot of words. There may be a couple of video game references too. So, uh, so check that out and, uh, let me know what you think. Uh, and most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening.